Welcome to Antitrust Code by Concurrences. Concurrences is the leading antitrust database with over 30,000 articles on competition law. Concurrences is also the largest network of antitrust experts with lawyers, economists, enforcers, and academics in 85 countries. By listening to this podcast, you will learn the fundamentals of competition law and hear about the latest antitrust news thanks to our guests, the best experts in the antitrust world. Hello, I'm Judge Douglas Ginsburg, and I'm here today with Peter Freeman, who was until recently the 2021 chairman of the Competition Appeals Tribunal in the United Kingdom. And our subject is judicial review of competition cases. And Peter was so kind as to write the chapter in the book dealing with the United Kingdom, for which he was in such a good uh, position to do that. Um, we're very grateful. So, um, Peter, I want to, uh, uh, if I may, just to get the terminology straight for those of us who are um, uh, not in the UK, uh, could you just explain briefly uh, the concepts of judicial review as opposed to all merits review? Yeah, thanks, Doug. It's a pleasure to be here and very nice to talk to you again. Um, I was careful to put the title of my chapter as Judicial Oversight because judicial review has a technical meaning in, in, in the United Kingdom sort of context. Basically, uh, judicial review means a well, well-developed way in which the courts review the acts of the executive, and they look at procedural fairness, legality, and what's called rationality, uh, and recently proportionality has crept in. Uh, but that's in contrast to merits appeal, where you, you do all that, but you're also able to look at whether the decision is right or wrong. And as a court, you can substitute your own judgment if you think the authority or the executive got it wrong. So judicial review, or JR for short, is very much looking at how the decision was reached, whereas merits appeals also looks at whether it's the right decision. That's that's the basic difference. Thank you. And am I correct in thinking, uh, if I read your chapter correctly, that that the Competition Appeals Tribunal, which is, of course, a specialized uh, judicial body, um, exercises both um, judicial review and full merits review, depending upon the, the type of case before. Is that correct? Well, it must look very puzzling to um, outsiders, and it's quite puzzling to insiders too. But the explanation is historical. Uh, that is to say, the UK competition system is an amalgam of the, the old control of markets and mergers, and a new control of use of dominant positions and restrictive agreements, cartels. And it was all wrapped together around about the turn of the century. Um, but they were very reluctant to relinquish parts of the old system. And the uh, mergers and markets part was administered by the new competition commission, which was a sort of commission body, independent quasi-judicial almost, and it was thought that judicial review could go on being quite sufficient for merger and markets decisions. But the new cartel and abuse of dominance jurisdiction, which had heavy penalties and raised human rights issues, that was felt had to be subject to full merits review. So the Competition Appeal Tribunal did both, and it's got both streams still feeding into it, despite the fact that all the institutions were merged into a single Competition and Markets Authority, CMA, in 2013. So I don't, I don't 
defend it, but I can explain it. <laughs> <laughs> well, I think that makes it clear enough. But then when you said it was thought that the uh, cases involving abuse and potential penalties and so on uh, required um, full review, um, is that because of the uh, the obligations in the Human Rights Act and the uh, European Convention on Human Rights with regard to procedures or not in penal matters? Well, it's never quite clear, but the uh, European Convention was enacted into UK law at the same time as the Competition Act, and I think that did influence the appeal structure very convincingly. Um, you are entitled under that Act, if you're a subject to penalties, uh, to a to a fair trial before an independent tribunal in public with full access to the evidence. That's that's what was translated into merits review. I mean, human rights does apply in some merger situations where you have divestments, but it's not such a strong argument. So does that mean in the original abuse proceeding, um, those protections are afforded? Well, an authority like the CMA as, or the OFT as it was before, it's not very sort of common law-like in that it, it's an administrative authority, really modeled on the Russell's uh, um, example, uh, where the investigation and the decision is taken by the same body. And the OFT and the CMA after it, you know, they really do try to be very fair. I don't think there's any doubt about that. They're not trying to run an unfair process but they are judging their own case. You need access to an independent tribunal uh, if you're going to be subject to quasi-criminal penalties, which is which is what, what happens. Well, that's the system as well with our Federal Trade Commission, which brings cases into its internal uh, administrative process, as opposed to our antitrust division of the Department of Justice, which goes to the federal court in the first instance. So um, there's this same tension about um, the suspension of, of uh, yeah. Yeah. full rights in, in uh, with the European system and what Brock you see here, and I guess to that. Well, in the background here in the UK, there is always the argument that maybe we should grasp the metal and move to a full prosecutorial system, go back to that so that, so that the CMA would bring cases in front of the tribunal, all cases, I think. That would deal with some of these points, but it would be quite a big leap for the UK, having had 25 years of administrative enforcement. Yes, but that reminds me of something. You're saying those 25 years. Um, since 1998, there seems to have been a number of changes in the institutional structure of competition um, enforcement. Uh, the most recent one you mentioned, the merger of the two administrative uh, bodies, but and that's that was that's just the most recent. Why, why do you suppose there's been so much instability of the arrangements over this last one time there? Well, it depends how far you want to go back. I mean, <laughs> <laughs> the original body was set up in 1948, and in 1955 it decided it needed to split into two, and that 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 led to a to a bifurcation then, um, and there was this stream of the administrative body which became the Office of Fair Trading, and the and the Monopolies and Mergers Commission, as it was known, originally the Monopolies Commission, which morphed into the Competition Commission. These two bodies, administering different parts of the law, sort of operated in coexistence right up until 2013. Now, I mean, that, that was relatively stable, 
actually, as a as a concept. But I felt people were striving all the time to get the ideal institutional structure. And in my view, and this is a personal view, I'm not speaking for anybody else, I don't think they've got the right structure even now because what happened in 2013 was to put the two streams, if you like, under a single umbrella, but to leave them, well, intact. So the CMA at the moment um, has within it a panel system, which is what's left of the old competition commission. And you see that, you see that causing a certain amount of tension. Um, it's kept well under control, but, it, but it, it, it's an oddity. You feel there's one more institutional reform that still needs to be done. Well, uh, let me ask you this. The, the Competition Appeals Tribunal, I think the first of its sort, that is to say, judi fully judicial, but specialized, with judges drawn as needed to service on that court for a period of time. Um, and that has been emulated and imitated in India and in Canada and perhaps other places around the world. Uh, I think the CAT, as we call it, uh, has, stands in very high regard uh, on this side of the, uh, of the pond. Um, what do you suppose have been the, or what have you observed are the advantages or if there are disadvantages having a specialized tribunal with real judges? Well, I, th I think the advantages are, are that you, you get a specialized body of judicially trained people. And they're not all judges because we have what are called ordinary, but they're not ordinary at all, ordinary members who are distinguished economists, businessmen, uh, who are able to, to bring an element of informed deliberation uh, to increasingly complicated cases. And I think this three-person panel structure uh, with a specialized staff operating on a UK-wide basis, so it's a sort of federal tribunal, um, running a case from start to finish. There's no sort of handing around from judge to judge. You have a single docket approach, and that, 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 that's, that's quite an advantage in, in the UK context in the High Court. That doesn't happen. Uh, I just think it brings an element of expertise uh, to the area, which is absolutely crucial. And with the expansion of private actions, now in the UK, coming before the CAT, I mean, it, it is becoming a very a very expert body, and that that brings advantages. Now there are people who say we've got one expert body; that's the authority. We don't want another one, uh, and there is a danger there. Yeah, we don't we don't want a second authority uh, waiting in the wings as one judge put it to intervene. It's, it doesn't operate like that. It operates to bring intelligent scrutiny to the activities of the authorities. Uh, the arguments against it, I find very hard, very hard to find actually. But uh, it, it would be very, very British, having got a specialised authority, to then abolish it because it was thought to be too successful. But we haven't quite reached that stage yet. <laughs> well, ex ante, when considering whether to establish a specialised tribunal, uh, um, one sees in the, uh, the debate, as it were, uh, objections that it will become ingrown and will adopt as. It's on the lingo, and it will be um, uh, inaccessible and unintelligible to the, to the uh, public in a way that the decisions of our your general courts never have been. Well, I think the way we get around that is that in addition to specialist people like myself, the, the body of chairman also includes a lot of high court judges who are, who are drafted in for particular cases, appointed as chairman. Um, and also, similarly, 
eminent people from Scotland, Northern Ireland. Uh, so you actually get quite a lot of, if you like, non-specialist um, uh, genes in the in the gene pool. And I think they, 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 those those judges bring a very a very important element of, of the outside world, if you like, and stop the tribunal getting too inward looking and too too specialized. Well, that was just what I was hoping to hear because I think this is something worth trying in the United States, uh, where we 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 challenge uh, generalist judges with even the most complex competition as well as patent cases. Um, and um, and on average, the federal district court judge will have perhaps two of these cases in in a career, and never yes. develop any real familiarity uh, with the subject. Uh, so I I think the pure experiment I think uh, has shown the world that it's it's something real worth considering. Um, so is the a unified a unified standard of review? I think is your ultimate prescription. Is that right? Well, I think following on from what we've been saying, it, the, the regime we have is is a little anomalous in the sense that it's a result of historical developments. Somebody didn't sit down last year and write it all out on a clean sheet of paper. Um, so we have to deal with these these oddities. And one of the oddities, as you pointed yourself, is a different standard of review for different types of case. And what has happened partly after the UK has left the European Union is, of course, that the merger control side has become very important because the CMA is doing um, all the major merger cases. It doesn't have a shared jurisdiction with the EU anymore, and they're all in the in the, in the public focus, and they are involving very large amounts of money, and they are hotly contested. And yet, it is being said that the the standard, the bar, is is very high. It's very hard to get an authority decision overturned because of the JR standard. Now, whether that's right or not, that's the perception. And it's a, it, it, it sits a little uncomfortably alongside a, a much more heavy scrutiny for use of dominance cases. Price, price, excessive pricing, there's been a number of those recently, and also cartels. Um, that's, that's the situation. My, my, my solution for dealing with it, first of all, is to is to have agreement on on a harmonised standard, because it seems to me that at the moment there's constant pressure either from uh, regulators, government uh, to lower the merit standard in antitrust cases. That seems to be the wrong solution. On the other hand, if you have full merits for everything, that could be quite oppressive. And we've got the digital markets side coming coming up, which, which is another area of appeal jurisdiction. So I think we're looking for some kind of halfway house judicial review that allows due account to be taken of the merits. And there is a precedent for that in the uh, Communications Act uh, regulation. Again, partly because of legislative accident, we have an EU requirement, which is still retained in our law, to take due account of the merits. We have a UK statute which says appeals shall be by way of judicial review. So. We have judicial review taking due account of the merits. Everybody says that's a nonsense, but actually it works quite well. As you look at the decision, you look at the fairness, the reasonableness, the proportionality, and then if the merits are relevant, you can look at them too. So that would be my solution, but I'm, I'm just one voice amongst many, and there are lots of people who want to keep things either exactly as they are or else they want to 
produce JR across the board. And I think that would be very retrograde. Well, you're just one voice, the one metal with more experience than uh, and all but a few uh, people in the UK. And I think others will look to you uh, with great uh, uh, deference. Um, where where do we stand on the digital markets unit? Has has the Commons taken it up? Um, well, it's much discussed, and the legislation hasn't actually been finalised yet. But the the plan at the moment is that appeals from the regulatory decisions of the new digital markets unit of the CMA will be by way of judicial review. I think to the tribunal, and I'm never quite certain. That seems to be the assumption. Mm. Um, and there was a discussion in the House of Lords before a select committee recently, and evidence was given. The cat obviously stays out of this sort of thing. It doesn't it doesn't express a view one way or the other. But, but a very strong push from the CMA to have judicial review only. Uh, and that, I would expect, is what the law will be. <clears throat> the other, the, the danger I see coming from that is is that it will, it will, in a sense, push judicial review into expanding into a form that it never really was intended to be. So you'll get, you'll get JR plus through the actions of, of, of the judges who will, who will strive to look in great detail at these decisions and um, not just to do a light, skimpy analysis. And I, and I think we may get very long judicial review decisions as a result, which is a bit odd because one of the arguments for judicial review is that it's very short and quick speedy and able to adapt to fast-moving markets. So I think there are traps ahead. Well, indeed, the types of decisions coming out of the agency once it's fully authorized with the Digital Markets Act, uh, I think will be a good deal more complex than anything that we've seen before. Well, who, I, you know, you, I'm sure you're right. I mean, time will tell. The, all I can say from my experience with these major reforms is that what people have in mind when they plan, when they write them out is not what happens. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, well, that's almost inevitable. The ability to anticipate the effects of any change is limited, and the creativity you, you, you that people respond to that change is not limited. You could say that about the growth of private litigation. Yeah, now, I, I don't think the framers of the legislation in 2015 really anticipated the enormous growth of these cases, which are which are mushrooming as we yeah. speak. Yes. <clears throat> a, uh, a conversation with um, uh, with uh, President Cashelli before he left the agency, of course, when we, we did the Beasley lecture, and I was the respondent on that. Mm -hmm. It seemed to me that the, the very modest number of companies he thought would be designated as strategically uh, important uh, would grow much beyond anything that could be imagined at the outset. Uh, well, the experience is that they litigate, and we we would expect them to litigate. Yes, and we, right. need to be, we need to be ready for that. That's right. Everything will be contested. Uh, that's quite right. Peter, are there other things that uh, we'd like to discuss before we lose this opportunity? You've been so generous with your time. Well, I did notice that the FTC's internal um, adjud adjudication. Uh, system is itself under attack in the U.S. Is that likely to be uh, a serious issue, or is that, or is that just litigation again? I think it's a very serious issue. Um, the the uh, academic uh, momentum has been very much in the direction of re-examining a 1920s decision in which the Supreme Court upheld 
these tripartite commissions uh, which uh, which have both leg have legislative and judicial and executive functions um, and uh, seemingly in violation of our separation of powers doctrine but it's been tolerated and and, and uh, adapted to over the decades now the course has just cleared the way for a direct constitutional challenge somebody who's caught up in the agency proceeding as a respondent, sought to challenge the constitutionality of the scheme, and um, was told you cannot do that until you've exhausted it, and, and and if you come out short, then you can appeal that and challenge the constitutionality. And the Supreme Court said no, uh, in a 9-0 opinion, uh, that's an independent challenge. It can go to federal court, and it cannot be held up waiting for the agency to continue its process to judgment, which could take some years. So uh, that will be uh, before the Supreme Court within a year or two. Uh, interesting, and, uh, interesting, because I mean there was a big debate here yeah, ten years ago when the Competition Commission and the OFT were merged as to whether you could actually have effectively an, an internal judicial arrangement under which all the decisions would come to a, a commission within the CMA, which would be the old Competition Commission, and whether that would satisfy the requirements of need for an independent trial for a, for a, 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 a body with access to the evidence. And, and there are academics who still put that forward as the solution, as an alternative to, mm -hmm. to strengthening the, um, the appeal standard. Um, so it's an active debate here. Well, and now it is on both sides because um, concerns are that uh, we'll devise the person a constitutional assured right to a jury trial and they civil case with challenges and uh, 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 the an impartial decision maker because the party that authorizes the investigation then decides it's turned up enough to go forward with the case after the hearing was also the merits uh, decider of, of the matter. And so uh, it's, it's, it's really quite far from independent looking. Uh, and in those 20% or so of the cases where the hearing officer holds against the commission or in favor of the company, uh, it is invariably reversed by the five commissioners on a verbal review. I say in the earliest rule, that is to say 95% or so of the time. Um, so it, it has some real problems on the Supreme Court's going to have to grapple with them. Well, might yeah. put them on hold and see if we learn anything. <laughs> yes. I'm not sure there's a great appetite in this country for further institutional reform. But we have other problems, as you know. But it's nice to have, have ideas anyway. <clears throat> Let me ask you before I lose the opportunity, if you can uh, give an opinion as to why it is so infrequently that a criminal case is preferring a cartel violation. Oh, well, I was very active when that provision was introduced. That was, again, at the turn of the century, part of the reforms. I think the reason is, again, we slightly ducked the issue. We we introduced a very specific criminal offence. It had to have you know each item very clearly uh, identified. We originally had quite a stiff dishonesty requirement as well, and I just think and it put the Office of Fair Trading, as it was then, in the rather uncomfortable position of being the prosecutor or at least advising the the, the public prosecutor to do it, which didn't square with its administrative job of actually investigating and, and uh, deciding on infringements. And I just think they find it very, very difficult to find suitable cases. Then they had to go in front of the general courts and they didn't always, always win. 
Um, so I think they've gone instead for director disqualification as a, as a way of targeting individuals. The irony is, of course, that the system which this wonderful antitrust law replaced was the old Restrictive Trade Practices Act here, which while it was largely ineffective in, in many ways, um, it did enable the courts to attack, or the Director General of uh, Trading, to attack individuals, individual directors, as aiding and abetting um, a breach of the Act. And those cases were quite quite major for the individuals. I don't think anybody was actually sent to jail, but a number of people got awfully close to it. I was oh, in one case where the man appeared in court with his briefcase, expecting yeah. to go to jail that evening. <clears throat> Uh, well, I think the director's disqualification is a very useful sanction, and I'd like to see it added to the panoply of sanctions available to our courts, but uh, uh, that's a long way off, I'm afraid, in this country. Well, that's quite quite, quite generally used here and quite effective, I think. Also, it seems to be, uh, because you have a good deal of deterrence, very little recidivism, unlike Picard's amount. Well, um, let's hope so. <laughs> Well, thank you very much uh, for these insights and uh, and uh, a bit of history as well. Thank Always you. Pleasure to be with you here. And, that, and, and you too, Douglas. Thank you very much. Bye. You listened to an episode of Antitrust Code by Concurrences. If you want to read more about this topic, check the Concurrences website, where you can find all relevant articles. Follow us on Twitter at Competition Loss and join the Concurrences group on LinkedIn to receive updates on our next podcast.